This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. Scripture reading this morning comes from a selection from the book of Proverbs. You can find them printed in the bulletin if you'd like to follow along as I read. Proverbs 3, verses 9 through 12. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father the son in whom he delights. Proverbs 20, verse 1. Wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Proverbs 21, 15 through 17, and verse 20. When justice is done, it is a joy to the righteous, but terror to evildoers. One who wanders from the way of good sense will rest in the assembly of the dead. Whoever loves pleasure will be a poor man. He who loves wine and oil will not be rich. Precious treasure and oil are in a wise man's dwelling, but a foolish man devours it. Proverbs 23, 29 through 35. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who tarry long over wine, those who go to try mixed wine. Do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart utter perverse things. You will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea like one who lies on the top of a mast. They struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake? I must have another drink. Proverbs 25, 16, and 27 through 28. If you have found honey, eat only enough for you, lest you have your fill of it and vomit it. It is not good to eat much honey, nor is it glorious to seek one's own glory. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Josh, one of the pastors here, and glad to be with you this morning. Uh, Let's let's pray together uh, really briefly before we get into our... Looking at these Proverbs this morning, let's pray. Father, we ask that you would pour out your spirit upon us this morning as we meditate upon your word. Would you revive us, Lord? Would you guide us? Would you lead us in the way that we should go? This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, during the season of Lent, uh, we are looking at the seven deadly sins, which, you know, we said last week as we got things started by looking at anger, we said that these sins are not necessarily the worst ones, uh, they're just the most common. 
They're not the deepest pit per se, but they are the widest road. These are the things that are most likely to get you. These are the things that are most likely to entrap you, the things that are most likely to poke holes in your life, holes through which the the good life, the abundant life, as Jesus said, will then begin to leak out. And as we look at these sins, as we go through the series, uh, the reality is it's going to sting a little bit. And if you think about these things, if you pull the string on these things, if you let the weight of these Proverbs land upon you, it's going to sting. And some will feel more challenging than others, no doubt. But these temptations are so universal that I think all of them will touch our lives in some way or another, if we'll let them. And so as we press on them a little bit, it's going to sting. And the goal in that is not to heap on shame. The goal is to bring about healing. Listen to what the writer of Proverbs says in Proverbs chapter 3. He said in verse 11, My son, do not, be dis- do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. God's word can sting, but God gives us that word, even that hard word, out of love. And today we're talking about gluttony. And of all the things that we're discussing in this series, I think this one gives me the most fear and trepidation. A lot of ways to step in it this morning as we talk about this topic. I mean, some of it, frankly, is my own struggles. You know, I started writing this on Tuesday, uh, the day before Ash Wednesday, which is, you may not know, is typically called Fat Tuesday. So there I am at my kitchen counter beginning to write this sermon on gluttony on Fat Tuesday with a cherry pie staring at me. And the struggle felt very real in that moment. More broadly and more seriously, we have a very complicated relationship to food and drink in this country, don't we? I mean, on the same magazine cover, if you go into the checkout aisle at any store, you'll see probably in the same space on the same page, uh, articles that say things like, trim your tummy, 10 ways to curb your cravings. And then just another article right below it saying irresistible chocolate desserts and how to make them. Listen, how can you curb your cravings if there are things out there that are irresistible, right? It's impossible to win. We know both fast food and the diet industry in this country are multi-billion dollar industries. Body images, uh, body image issues rather, they soar. And so in addition to overeating, we also have an epidemic of undereating. We haven't even talked about our relationship to alcohol and addiction. All of this makes gluttony a live issue and worth talking about, a relevant issue, but also a really complicated and confusing one. And so as we talk about it this morning, I just want to think about it under three headings. Uh, first, just what is gluttony? Secondly, then, what can it do if we What will it do to us if we leave it untreated? And then finally, how can we be healed? What's the cure? What's the treatment for gluttony? All right, so first, just by way of diagnosis, what is gluttony? Most simply, gluttony is the idolization of food and drink. Idolization to make a God out of food and drink. Let's talk about food first. Gluttony removes food from its proper place in life and grants it Too much importance. It is an inordinate interest in or even obsession with food. 
Now, typically we think of gluttony as simply eating too much, but it's always been more uh, than that. It's less about how much you eat and more about the control or the power that food has over you, which is why Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, talks about gluttony and lust together in terms of being mastered by or dominated by pleasure. It's not that pleasure is wrong. It's being mastered by it that's wrong. It's being controlled or dominated by it. In another place, Philippians 3, Paul says that gluttons are those people whose gods are their bellies. Do you hear that? The idolization of food and drink. If you look through the story of scripture, food plays a role in some of the most spectacular failures of people in the Bible. Adam and Eve in the garden, right? They disobey God in order to pursue that one kind of food, the fruit of the one tree that they're not supposed to eat. Esau trades his birthright in exchange for a bowl of soup. When the Israelites are in the wilderness, they want to go back to Egypt. Do you remember what their reason was? It was the food. Numbers chapter 11, oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. When Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness, one of the things that he uses is food. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. He was correcting the church in Corinth in a lot of different ways. But the one time he tells them, you know what? You should just call off your worship services was because of food. The rich who did not have to work were able to get there early and they ate up all the food before the poor who did have to work, many of them slaves or servants, did have to work before they could come. And so the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, which is meant to unify, actually became a cause of division by class in the church. Food has always been there when people mess up. God gives us food and drink, but they were never meant to occupy the central place in our hearts and our minds. You were never meant to be defined by your appetite. And talked about food, but think about drink for a second. Proverbs 3, Proverbs chapter 21 in your list there, both say, and really it's the testimony throughout Scripture, that wine is a good gift. It's a symbol of blessing, right? Your vats will be bursting with wine. All throughout Scripture, wine is seen as a good gift. Genesis 27, Deuteronomy 14, it's consumed at feast. It's part of celebration. Psalm 104, verse 15, wine gladdens the heart of man. Matthew 26, wine is one of the elements of the Lord's Supper by Jesus' own institution. John chapter 2, Jesus' first miracle is the creation of a lot of wine at the wedding at Cana. And so wine is a good gift, but it also can be dangerous. Your second proverb in the list in your bulletin there is Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1, where it says, Wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. In other words, it can take control of you. It can redirect you. It can lead you down a dangerous path. It can destroy you. Gluttony, like all of the seven deadly sins, begins with something created good, then sin comes in and corrupts. It twists it. Gluttony is when food and drink have too much power in our lives. Now, if gluttony is an inordinate interest in food, how does this play out? 
What forms does it take? I mentioned Gregory the Great last week, a father of the church, theologian in the early church, and he was the one who trimmed this list of, uh, of deadly sins to seven, more or less in the present form that we have it today. And so writing 1,500 years ago, it's, it's amazing how descriptive his definition of gluttony is for us. He said, gluttony is eating too daintily, too sumptuously, too hastily, too greedily, or too obsessively. Gluttony is eating too daintily, too sumptuously, too hastily, too greedily, or too obsessively. Let's think about each of these for a second. All right, too daintily. Now, if you're this kind of glutton, you may not overeat, but everything has to be just right. You have to, you have a, you're picky, you know, you have an arbitrary problem with almost every meal that you're served. You're frequently sending things back to the kitchen. The wait staff at your favorite restaurant kind of rolls their eyes when you come because they know it's going to be difficult to please you. You don't receive hospitality very well because you're thinking not about the kindness that's being done to you, but you're thinking about how it could be done better. Any of that sound familiar? Or maybe you've entertained a guest like this for whom nothing is quite right. Well, you make, you know, they make a dozen special requests about every little thing. C.S. Lewis has a great scene on this in his book, The Screwtape Letters. Uh, Screwtape Letters is a fictional story of an older demon, an older tempter advising his younger apprentice on how best to get people to sin. And in one episode, he describes a woman who has come under the control of the gluttony of delicacy, which is very similar to what we're talking about too daintily here. Here's what he says. Your patient's mother, as I learned from the dossier, and you might have learned from Glubos, is a good example. She would be astonished to learn that her whole life is enslaved to this kind of gluttony which is quite concealed from her by the fact that the the quantities involved are small. But what do quantities matter? Provided that we can use a human belly and palate to produce querulousness, impatience, uncharitableness, and self-concern. Glubos has this old woman well in hand. She is a positive terror to hostesses and servants. She's always turning from what has been offered her to say with a demure little smile, oh, please, please, all I want is a cup of tea, weak but not too weak, and the teeniest, weeniest bit of really crisp toast. You see, because what she wants is smaller and less costly than what has been set before her, she never recognizes as gluttony her determination to get what she wants however troublesome it may be to others. The key to understanding this type of gluttony is the focus is entirely on you, what you need, what you want in order to be happy. Instead of being humble and grateful when it comes to food, you're finicky and demanding, eating too daintily. Well, another way is too sumptuously. This has to do with what kind of food you eat, or at least what uh, concerns you have, what goes into making your food choices. To eat sumptuously is never to think about health. It's never to think about what others around you might want to eat. It's never to think about cost. When you eat sumptuously, it's to eat with one thing in mind. What's the tastiest thing to me right now? And if you've ever seen the Pixar movie, Wally, this is the gluttony that's pictured there. All these whole ship full of people sitting in their 
motorized chairs, being able to dial up exactly what they want just when they want it, and they become passive consumers, sumptuous gluttons, too hastily. My dad used to use the term shoveling for how we would eat when we were kids, the next bite on the way in before the last one was finished. And I guess there's probably not an ideal speed at which to eat. But the point of this kind of gluttony, this glutton eats so fast that it doesn't actually allow for enjoyment. It doesn't allow for giving thanks. It doesn't allow for savoring. It doesn't allow for celebrating or connecting over food or enjoying the people at the table with you. Too greedily is probably one that you think of most when you hear the word gluttony. It has to do with excess, overeating, eating past the point of fullness for the sake of indulging tastes. And the danger isn't mainly in adding a few pounds. The danger is in creating a pattern in your life where you're willing to overlook consequences in order to get pleasure in the moment. They used to call this intemperance. It really means a lack of self-control. The last of your Proverbs there, Proverbs 25 or 16, says, if you have found honey, eat only enough for you, lest you have your fill and vomit it. Now, you got to remember, in the ancient world, there's no candy stores. There's no aglamaces. You can't go to the creamy whip. There's no sweets, really, or at least not easy to come by. And so when you find honey, it's a big deal, and you want to enjoy it. The temptation is, right, to gorge yourself upon it. In Proverbs warns about this kind of gluttony. Derek Kidner, in his commentary in the book of Proverbs, he calls this verse a parable of the fatal difference between healthy appetite and gluttony. Since the Garden of Eden, man has wanted the last ounce out of life, as though beyond God's enough is ecstasy, not nausea. And finally, too, obsessively. Instead of seeing eating as a part of life, we make eating our life. We obsess about food. It controls our thoughts. It controls our attitudes. Most simply, it becomes too important to us. It crowds out others. When you go to a party, you're more concerned what the food will be like than the people who will be there. And if the food isn't good, it ruins the whole experience for you, despite the company that you keep. Food becomes something that defines us rather than God defining us. We're good or bad, we think, based on our food choices. We use that language all the time, don't we? The morality language, but for food. I was good today. I was bad today. And even worse, we use it to judge the people around us based on their food choices. We can make an identity for ourselves based on what we eat or even by what we deny ourselves. And to sum it all up, gluttony is the idolization of food and drink. Food is a good, but it's not a God. So then what's the prognosis, right? If that's the diagnosis, what gluttony is, what can it do to us if it's left untreated, if it's left unchecked. An old French proverb warns that a glutton is one who digs his own grave with his teeth, which seems a bit melodramatic, but we know that gluttony can do damage and can do damage to us even physically. Proverbs 25, verse 16, again, we just read it, but if you found honey, eat only enough for you, lest you have your fill and vomit it. Now that's an episodic example, but think of the chronic issues that can come from overeating. According to the 
World Health Organization, 2.8 million people globally die every year from obesity-related causes. $30 billion is spent annually on dieting in our country, or roughly the equivalent of the gross national product of Latvia. The CDC says there are 95,000 alcohol-related deaths in our country every year. 46,000 deaths from fentanyl last year, fentanyl overdose. I know we're not talking about drug use much today. The notion of addiction is present, at least in the background of these things that we're talking about. Overconsumption, abuse of food and drink can do terrible damage. But damage can also come from the opposite direction too, right? If gluttony is the sin and temperance is the virtue, well, then there's a kind of counterfeit virtue, of denial, of scarcity, of asceticism, a denying yourself that also can do damage to the bodies that God has given us. Last year, there were over 10,000 deaths resulting from eating disorders in our country. And one in nine people will deal with something like an eating disorder somewhere on that spectrum at some point in their life. An unhealthy relationship to food and drink can do great damage. Think about some of the individual Proverbs in our list this morning. The second one down, Proverbs 20, verse 1. Wine is a mocker, strong drink, a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Wine is a mocker. What does that mean? Intoxication, drunkenness, humiliates, it ruins. Proverbs warns against this because the safeguards of wisdom and self-control are removed when we're inebriated. Strong drink is a brawler, both in that it can beat you up, but also can make you into somebody who beats somebody else up, right? It can make you a brawler, verbally, maybe physically. Or that lengthy section from Proverbs 23, describing the woe and suffering that comes from addiction. It looks good in the cup, verse 31, but in the end, it bites like a serpent, verse 32, It affects your perception, verse 33, your eyes will see strange things. It affects what you'll say and do. Your heart will utter perverse things. And the way addiction works, your dependence grows over time. Despite the ill effects, verse 35, you find yourself saying, when shall I wake up? I must have another drink. I spoke to a whole lot of folks who found themselves drinking a good bit more during COVID, especially that first year of COVID. For some, it started as a way to mark time, right? How else am I going to know when it's five o'clock, right? I don't pour myself a drink. You don't have the commute anymore. Then it was a way to cope with stress. So many different things were going on. What's going to happen in society? What's going to happen medically? What's going to happen relationally? What's going to happen economically? Am I going to have a job? Then as a way to deal with boredom, gosh, every day feels the same. All of a sudden, alcohol had a much bigger place in your life than it used to. You might even say that you started to look to it for things that you used to look to God for. Comfort, peace, the ability to cope with stress, a way to numb pain, drink, and even food can take the place of God in our lives. We come under its power. We look for it to do things that only God was meant to do. And and we lose self-control. Look at the last verse in your list, Proverbs 25, 28. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. 
You know, maybe the most famous story in the Bible along these lines is the story of Esau in Genesis chapter 25. Esau is the firstborn and he has the traditional right to the family inheritance, but he's willing to lose this. He's willing to trade it all away for a bowl of soup. One commentator says Esau's failure was his inability to forego immediate gratification and comfort in order to wait for the greater but deferred blessing. To get food in his belly, it took precedence over everything else, including his birthright. Literally, his God had become his belly. And that's how gluttony works. You become a prisoner to your appetite. Thomas Costain wrote a book called The Three Edwards. In one of the anecdotes in the book, he tells the story of Reynold III, a 14th century duke, in what is now Belgium, and Reynold's younger brother, Edward, led a revolt and took the kingdom. But he didn't kill Reynold. He imprisoned him instead in Newkirk Castle. It was a unique imprisonment because there were no locks on the windows, no locks on the door. In fact, Edward told Reynold that he could have his kingdom back whenever he wanted. He simply needed to leave the room. And that was the problem. So Reynold was severely overweight and couldn't squeeze through the door. And Edward knew his brother's slavery to his appetite. And so every day he sent up a rich array of foods, diabolical, this imprisonment. Rather than diet his way out of prison, Reynold just got bigger and bigger. He was in that prison without a door for 10 years until Edward was killed. And by then, Reynold's health was so ruined that he died within a year of his release. Very literally, he was a prisoner of his appetite. Now, those are extreme examples, Esau, Reynold. But vivid pictures of what the Bible says we all are tempted with in gluttony, a disordered desire for food and drink, and it can do serious damage. So what do we do about it? How do we push back? How do we treat this disease? What is the cure? Now, it's important to note that doctors prescribe different remedies depending on the specific situation of a patient, right? Doctors don't often give the same treatment. It's not always a one-size-fits-all kind of thing, right? And the same is true here. Historically, the old theologians prescribed a rhythm of feasting and fasting in order to reshape our relationship to food and drink, Now, again, depending on your circumstance, your prescription might be weighted more toward one or the others of these things, feasting or fasting. For example, if you struggle with addiction or even if you just find your dispensation, your temperament is toward addictive uh, kinds of behavior with regard to alcohol, right? The safest thing might just be to make a decision to cut this out of your life. That may be the way forward. And then to surround yourself with a whole company of people who can support you and encourage you and counsel you and pick you back up if you struggle. And I guess you would call that a fast of sorts. The flip side, though, is if you struggle with an eating disorder, I don't recommend fasting as a part of your remedy, at least not right now. Fasting is generally considered a good and helpful thing in the Bible. We are in the season of Lent, after all, when Christians do often practice fasting in a more intentional way. 
Fasting can be helpful in developing self-control and focusing on God and reminding us of our weaknesses and freeing up time for prayer, freeing up money for mission. All those are good things that can come fruit from the spiritual practice of fasting. But listen, if your tendency is already for food to control you through scarcity, through denial, through an unhealthy depriving yourself of food, if you struggle with an eating disorder, fasting is not a safe remedy. Even back 1,500 years ago, Gregory the Great recognized that. He said that beware in pursuing the enemy that we slay the citizen we love. Right? In other words, if you're trying to battle back against gluttony, be, be wary that you're not slaying yourself, the citizen that we love. Know yourself. Talk with others. Get counsel from people who love you. and Be transparent with them. Now, that said, I think there is a remedy that can be for everyone, and that is a kind of feasting, a biblical sense of what it means to feast. Because feasting is not so much about how much you eat, but it's in the way that you eat. And frankly, for every mention of fasting in the Bible, there are seven mentions of feasting in the Bible. It's everywhere in the Old Testament, perpetual feasts that happen uh, every year and often for many days at a time. And that continues on into the New Testament as well. Remember, Jesus' first miracle was at a wedding feast. He compares the kingdom of God again and again to a great banquet. Revelation says that when we get to heaven, it's going to feel like the wedding supper of the Lamb. Jesus went to so many parties that he was falsely accused of being a drunkard and a glutton. The battle, uh, to battle against the temptation to gluttony, we need to learn what it means to feast well. And what does that look like? Well, feasting begins first in your heart. Graham Tomlin in his book on the seven deadly sins, he says this, he said, gluttony is trying to fill a spiritual vacuum with a physical remedy. It's like taking penicillin for a broken heart. There's nothing wrong with penicillin, but it doesn't do much for a restless soul. And too much of it can lead to all kinds of problems. It's like taking penicillin for a broken heart. A disordered love for food is when we try to get it to do things for us. It was never meant to do. Remember, Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone. He also said in John chapter 6, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Food is a good, but it's a terrible God. It's a terrible God substitute. It can't bring us the true joy and comfort and satisfaction that we really crave. There is no amount of physical eating or drinking that can satisfy your soul. And if you try, you'll stuff yourself full, but just be left terribly spiritually empty. The battle against gluttony begins by finding the bread of life, by feasting on God, by communing with him, by looking to him to do the things for us that we're tempted to stuff other things into our life. Feasting begins in the heart. Secondly, feasting is about eating with thanks, right? If you can come to learn that everything is a gift, then you can enjoy the most delicate, the most artisanal foods, and you can enjoy the most mundane and the most common ones. To use Paul's language, you can be content with a lot. You can be content with a little. Food then is less about what you demand, what you need, than more it is about receiving a gift. 
Christians often start their meals with prayer, right? Saying grace. If you don't do this, let me encourage you to start, not as an empty ritual, but as a way of changing our attitude toward what we do at the table, by the way we appreciate the food that we eat. Feasting is about giving thanks. It's about receiving grace. And feasting also is about eating with purpose. One of the greatest things about food is that it connects us to other people. So many good memories, so many important conversations, so much of getting to know someone is done at the table over meals. That's why we encourage you to eat together in your community groups. That's why we encourage you to have your neighbors regularly into your house for meals or into your backyard for a barbecue. If you love Jesus and you eat with people regularly, you will have an impact, right? That's the stage for some of the best conversations that you can have. When you eat with Christians, you'll build, build community. When you eat with non-believers, you'll create opportunity for mission. We can tend to make it so complicated sometimes, but if you just eat with people, you'll have a lot of impact on others. And when you're focused on the needs of others as part of your meals, you're going to be leaning into God's purpose for your life. Food then becomes less about what I need, what I want, and more about an occasion to bless others, a way to serve, a way to employ hospitality, a way to welcome others into your life. Feasting battles gluttony because it lifts our eyes off of ourselves and turns them toward the need of your neighbor. And then finally, feasting is framed by the Lord's Supper. A communion which we do here every week at the end of our service. It's a, a picture of all the things we've been talking about this morning. It's a picture of the gospel. Jesus giving himself for us, his body broken, his blood poured out so that we could be reconciled to God. We take him in by faith. He nourishes our souls. He fills up those empty places in our life. Communion is about grace. After all, the word Eucharist means thanksgiving. At the communion table, We learn to eat with gratitude, recognizing that everything that we have comes from him. And communion reminds us that we're not in this alone. Watch the communion line sometime. Lots of different people coming forward. Some you know, some you don't. All with different stories. But all sinners saved by grace. All welcomed by Jesus to his table. Nothing will prepare you for hospitality more than watching people come forward and be welcomed by Jesus to his table. We take communion on the morning of the first day of the week, which means you're going to about 20 more meals after this one. This meal is meant to frame, to give meaning to, purpose to those other 20 meals that you eat throughout the week. We learn to feast at God's table. We do battle against gluttony. By learning to feast on God, communing with him, giving thanksgiving, and doing it with purpose, connecting to others. And so as we prepare to come to the supper in a moment, let's bow our heads, let's give thanks to the Lord, and ask our musicians to come up and lead us in another song, but let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to see if there are places where food or drink or anything else for that matter have become God's substitutes, things that we run to, either to define ourselves or to give us peace or comfort. Would you help us to repent of this, not by sheer denial, but by rather being filled by you?
We ask that you would come and meet with us even now by your spirit, that you would fill us up as we sing, as we come to your table. Would you teach us indeed what it means to feast upon your grace? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcitycincy.org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.